14. So I'm going to hand out a copy of the psalm, and then I do have pens up here if anyone needs a pen, and then I do have clipboards as well if someone needs a clipboard. And so uh, what we're going to do is, as we've done the last so many weeks, um, I'm going to give you time to just kind of read over the psalm, and then there's plenty of room for you to make notations, to uh, circle things that are repetitive, circle phrases that maybe stand out to you, uh, things that, that you find as interesting or uh, maybe something that maybe you have a question about. Uh, put a little question mark there. Um, again, uh, just as an example, mine are pretty crazy. My notes are kind of all over the place. So yours might look similar to this. If they're like Sandra's, there'll be little pictures on them. Um, and it's going to be awesome. So we're going to hand this out and then give you guys some time to kind of work through this on your own. There's that. I don't have a pencil, no. Uh, I don't know. Greg, can we get some background music just while we're doing that? Yeah, just hand it down. Anthony can get it. There you go. You're leaving already? You're offended? Oh, he probably wants it back there. Does anyone need a pen? Something to write with? I have pens up here. Anyone need a pen? Pen? Right there? Okay. There you go. Do you need one? Okay. All right. Here you go. Oh, she's already got a pen. <laughs> Watch it not even work. All right. So we'll go ahead and, uh, again, I'll give you guys just a little bit of time um, to work through it. It's a short psalm, only seven verses. Um, so I'll give you maybe about five minutes or so. Uh, again, this is just for you. No one's going to see this but you. And so take a few moments and just kind of make some observations and just kind of read through it for yourself. And then we'll talk about it in just a little bit.
And so I'll go ahead and read that for us. And so follow along there with your copy. So Psalm 14, uh, and this first part here, uh, very familiar, very, very familiar opening. And so we're just going to read it together, uh, or rather I'll read it, and then you can follow along, and then we'll break it apart. So it says here in verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done, done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. And it, so it's a little tough to read those lines and arrows and boxes, so I was trying to stay with it. But um, I, this is a familiar psalm in some ways. I think, again, many of us have heard the beginning of this psalm quoted many times. Uh, but sometimes we don't maybe take it in the fullness of what the psalm is speaking to here. So, we'll dive right in. The first question I'll ask is, um, there's something familiar in this psalm that we literally just talked about. What is that? What are some familiar words or phrases that we've already kind of seen in some other psalms? Anthony? Yeah, Zion, right? We talked about that before. Remember, Zion, as we're going to get to, is not just a geographical location in the original where fort, the fortress of Zion was, it's been broadened to mean much more than that. There's a greater scope. So we'll dive into that in a little bit here. Anything else that maybe is familiar to another psalm that we've talked about in the past? So the other phrase or word that we see in Psalm quite a bit, but we talked about too, the word refuge. Refuge, right? So if you haven't circled that or marked that word, circle that word refuge in uh, verse, where was that? Verse 6, yes. So again, we see that idea that, that he is a place of safety. And again, we'll talk about that. You can jot down to the side somewhere or maybe up in the top or the bottom. Uh, this psalm is depicting the state of the foolish. So it opens with this idea of the state of the foolish, Okay. Uh, this psalm is also in connection with Psalm 10 and Psalm 12. So Psalm 14, Psalm 10, and Psalm 12 all carry a similar theme, okay? Psalm 10 speaks to the proud attitude of the foolish. So Psalm 10 speaks to the proud attitude of the foolish. Psalm 12 speaks to their deceitful words, so you have the foolish being talked about in all three of these Psalms, 10, 12, and 14. Psalm 10 deals with their attitude of being proud. Psalm 12 deals with the idea of deceitful words. And Psalm 14 deals with their corrupt deeds. So this group known as the foolish have deceitful words, corrupt deeds, and a proud attitude. So you could say that in Psalms, the foolish are defined and identified in those areas. Deceitful words, proud attitude, corrupt deeds. So Psalm 14.1, again, has been quoted numerous times 
And so let's see what this psalm has to say about the foolish. Uh, The first thing we understand is there are two groups of people in the world, according to the book of Psalms, according to the book of Proverbs, really according to God's word. Two groups of people. Remember, how many races are there among humanity? There's one race, the human race, but there are two spiritual races or two spiritual groups. Those that are in Christ, those that are not in Christ. You could also say those that are in Christ are the wise. Those that are not in Christ are the foolish. So there's two groups of people, as we see in Psalms, Proverbs, and also in the Word of God. The foolish and the wise. The foolish and the wise. Verse 1, we find out this is both emotional and intellectual. This, this fool, foolishness that these people struggle with and have defining them is emotional and intellectual. It says in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said, made a definitive decision, right? A conclusion, there is no God. But the psalmist says he said this in his heart. It's emotional and it's intellectual. They're making a decision, a conclusion, but also there's emotion there. This is not just head knowledge or heart knowledge. It's both. It's saying there is no God definitively. Psalm and Proverbs both speak to this comparison between, again, the foolish and the wise. This claim, there is no God, is the claim of those that in our culture we call atheists. That's the term that's given to them. Believing there is not sufficient evidence or no evidence to support a belief in God. An atheist will tell you, I'm fine believing in a God. Just show me the evidence. Show me the proof. And they will tell you there is not either enough sufficient proof or there's absolutely no proof. And so because you can't prove to me the existence of God, I then don't believe in your God. Which is interesting because, again, I would say there's tons of evidence to support God if we are willing to look at the evidence. But people, as we know, don't really want proof of God. They don't want to believe in God for what reason? Why is it that humanity will resist a belief in God no matter how much proof is presented? Why, why are people, why are humanity, or why is humanity desiring not to believe in God? Right. They're their own God. They worship themselves, do what they want to do. Our sinful nature is going to lead us away, right? Okay, so we can choose to, I denounce Christ, I I don't want anything to do with God, okay? Yeah, if I admit there is a God, well then now I have to start saying, what did that God reveal as far as expectations, demands, you know, requirements? What does he say I should be doing, how I should be living? It's an authority, right? We don't want to put an authority over us. Now, again, I believe there's tons of evidence for God. The Bible seems to suggest there's clear evidence for God in creation, in the Word, and through Christ. Okay, those are kind of the key places we find evidence for God. But also we find evidence for God in ourselves, right? We have a conscience within us. We have a a moral compass. Now, yes, it's been corrupted by sin, but we know right from wrong. How do we know that? We don't know that because of the result of evolution. Evolution does not give us a moral compass. 
And in fact, what does evolution actually teach about how we should interact with other human beings? If we're, if we're just a result of evolution, then how should I treat other human beings? With a moral compass? Right and wrong? What's better for them? Even though I might have to sacrifice? No. It's survival of the fittest. If you're weak and you're, you're limited and you can't do certain things, then we're just going to get rid of you. Why? Because you're just taking up space. You're taking oxygen that I need, and I don't like that, so I'm just going to get rid of you. But why is it when we see people being victimized, we see elderly people that are in need, we, we run to help them. Our heart breaks for people when we see them suffering or going through different situations. We just hear about what's going on in Puerto Rico with this hurricane that went through. Why does our heart long to, to do something for those people? Not because of evolution, but because we've been given this conscience of God. God has made us in the image of God. We have an understanding because of how we were created. So again, there's evidence in us and all around us if we're willing to look at the evidence. If we're willing to look at the evidence. And so, again, also, we must pause here and note that God does not actually believe in atheists. He doesn't believe in atheists. And then actually, if you were a part of our study, our men's study, and we actually did something on Sunday nights too with Dr. Vodi Bakum and his study through expository apologetics, he makes that point very clear. The Bible makes it clear that God knows that all humanity knows there's a God. Roman one, Romans 1 uh, is very clear on this, that all mankind knows there is a God. We merely suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We merely suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so again, the solution to that is not more information about God. The solution is that we need a changed heart. We need to be able to have a changed heart. So how does that happen? Well, that happens only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God does not believe in atheists because he tells us, and his word makes it clear, that we know there is a God, although we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Also something to, to note here, and we're going to see this a lot, uh, Paul, and this is amazing how God does this and through the, the book of Romans, and we'll give you some of those as we go. Uh, another thing we look at here, I lost my place there in the notes. Another thing we look at here, not only the foolish, but we see the fruit of the foolish. The fruit of the foolish. What are the fruit, what is the fruit of the foolish in this psalm? What is the fruit or what is produced? What do the foolish produce in their lives? According to the first verse there. Yep. Yep. Abominable works. Okay, what else, how else would we say that? Maybe you have a different translation that says that differently. What are abominable works? Mine says they are corrupt, their actions are evil, and none of them do Okay, corrupt, evil deeds. Okay. What else? How else would you think about those, those works? They've all gone aside. They, they are filthy. They've become filthy. Yep. So it actually unpacks that a little bit as we go through the psalm, right? Any other thoughts on that? The fruit of the foolish. It's really anything we do, right? Absent from God's leading. Anything I do that is not led and directed by the wisdom of God, the heavenly wisdom, is the fruit of the foolish. Now, in this context, we're talking about two groups of people, the foolish and the wise. 
But I would argue and suggest that Christians can live like fools. We, we don't, not, I mean, we know Christ. We're not absent from knowing Christ, but we can live this way. We can actually live and see foolish things happen in our life because we're rejecting the wisdom that he gives us. So again, these are corrupt deeds. These are foolish things that we see in our lives. Um, it's important to note that the good here in this verse, at the end of verse 1, it says there is none that do, does good. Uh, this good is referring to righteousness in the eyes of God. Righteousness in the eyes of God. We can, of course, recognize that people do good things in our world. That's okay to recognize that, right? It's okay to recognize that that Red Cross goes in and does good things to help people in need. There's nothing wrong with saying that's a good thing that you're doing. We see good things happen all the time. But that good is not this good in verse 1. This good is literally righteous deeds, things that are righteous, things that come from a place of understanding holiness and what that looks like. And so, again, we can recognize that people do good and give to charity and care for the poor and the sick, but those good acts will not forgive sin or grant them the righteousness of God. So that's the difference. Good things, yes, we can recognize that, but those good things are not good enough to grant forgiveness of sins. We need Christ to do that. We also understand from this opening verse that we have all sinned and fallen short. There is none that do good. And again, this is a reference to Paul in the book of Romans. This is again where we also have to ask and say, do we live as Christians practically as fools? Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago we did a sermon series called Christian Atheist. And it was actually a book written by Craig Rochelle. And he talked about the idea of where Christians or people will claim to believe in God and claim to believe in the word of God, but live practically as fools, as atheists. They don't want to acknowledge God in certain areas of their life or in certain situations. And so again, we can say, oh, those foolish atheists, those that don't believe in God and you know, live this way or that way. But ultimately, we need to understand that sometimes if we're not careful, we can live practically like those fools. If we're not constantly looking to him and asking for his wisdom and in guidance and his direction. So this opening verse sets up a very definitive two-group type understanding that there are those who are foolish and there are obviously those that are wise. Uh, verses 2 through 4, we see here that it's a human problem. It's a human problem. So verses 2 through 4, it says in verse 2, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. The children of men. There's this grouping of all of humanity. Uh, so when it says the Lord looked on the children of men and found no understanding of righteousness, he found no desire to seek after him. Now, this does not mean that God was unaware before he looked down. Okay? It wasn't like he was like, oh, that's what's going on down there. No, he understood what this is referring to is that when it's written for our understanding to express the desire straight that we find ourselves in as sinful men. That God is aware of all things. But when it says that he looked down and he saw no one that does good, no one that seeks after God, that was written for our benefit so that we would understand the sinful situation we find ourselves in naturally speaking. Again, it comes to mind, uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, when God came to Adam and asked Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Of course. So why did God say, Adam, where are you, if he knew where he was? He was giving Adam an opportunity. For what? Josiah. Okay. 
Yeah, see if Adam would respond. I like that, Sandra. Yeah, he, he wanted Adam to repent, right? He didn't want to have to go looking for Adam. Adam should have been waiting for God to show up, fell on his face and said, I'm, I'm so sorry for what we did. There should have been repentance. But what did Adam do once he realized that he had sinned? And we'll be careful how we word this, obviously, for little ears. But he ran and he hid, right? Then God approaches him and says, you know, Adam, where are you? Adam comes out. They have this conversation. Well, who told you that, Adam? Who, who made you aware of this, right? And this whole conversation pursues. This, again, is written for our benefit. God knows exactly what's going on in our heart, but he wants us to respond in repentance. And so, again, it's showing us where we are. Uh, when you read verse 3, it is meant to leave us feeling hopeless in our ability to earn our way to salvation, that's the intent of this. When you read the first three verses, you should be left feeling hopeless in our humanity, that we can do nothing to gain or merit salvation. We're supposed to feel that way. The phrase gone aside, you can go ahead and circle that. The idea of gone aside. Uh, this idea in verse three uh, literally means to depart or to be removed. To depart or to be removed. We in sin have departed the path of righteousness. And again, we see this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. So this idea of gone aside, we've all, as humanity, we've gone aside. We've departed from the way of righteousness. In verse 4, we see the fruit, again, of the foolish is also exploitation of the helpless or poor. So in verse 4, it talks about this idea of um, eat up my people, which is such a weird way to say that right? They eat up my people. But this isn't really foreign. Again, Paul refers to this idea later in one of his epistles, right? When he says you bite and devour one another. He was talking about the sin of gossip. You bite and devour one another. You're, you're exploiting people. That's the idea, okay? So that phrase, and you can put a little mark around that, eat up my people as they do bread or eat bread. That literally translates to exploitation of the helpless, to exploit the helpless, Specifically, we're going to find out later, it's the poor. An example, you can jot down some other references in Scripture of this idea of exploiting people, this idea of eating up my people as they eat bread. Um, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25. So Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25. Two other references that give us that idea of what that's talking about there. But also note here, how does the verse end? We see the fruit of the, uh, the foolish being uh, sinful deeds, corrupt deeds, right? They exploit the helpless, they exploit the poor. But what's another fruit of the foolish? How does verse 4 end? They don't call upon the name of the Lord. That implies that they could. Right? The psalmist is saying they could call upon the name of the Lord, but they choose not to. Why? Because they're foolish. Because they're not understanding. They're not seeing this in the right light. So again, what does that draw our attention to? Thinking of Paul writing in Romans, the idea of them not calling upon the name of the Lord. What does Paul say about that idea in the book of Romans? Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? So again, this invitation is not new. 
Paul's words in Romans is not a new invitation. Like it's never been understood before that we could call out to God for salvation, for deliverance. This is something that's been since Genesis 3 all the way forward. So here we see again, the psalmist is saying, man, they're doing this and they're seeing these fruits and they're seeing these things in their lives and they're not calling upon the name of the Lord, which is the place of rescue and strength and deliverance. Letter or verse five and six. Let's look, look at verses five and six. So here we see uh, the fear of the foolish. We see the fruit of the foolish. Now we see the fear of the foolish. So verses five and six. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is, is his refuge. So again, the distinction between the foolish and the wise will continue through eternity. This is not just in this world. This division, this distinction will continue all through eternity. There's this foolish and the wise, and it will continue through eternity. As a result, the foolish will realize their worst fears of judgment when they meet God and realize that he is with the righteous. That's the kind of the comparison here the psalmist is making. That the foolish live in this world and they think they have all the wisdom. They think they're the ones that are really the successful, right? We've got it all figured out. These foolish Christians over here, these foolish God followers, they just don't get it. They just don't know. But we really know what we're doing. We really know what we're all about, right? Look at how successful we are. But there's going to come a day where God will bring before him the two groups, the wise and the unwise, the saved and the unsaved, the sheep and the goats. And he is going to make an eternal distinctive decision on these two groups. Those that are in Christ enter into the joy of the Lord. Those that do not know Christ, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And it sounds so harsh, but that's what the psalmist is referencing here. This idea that there will be great fear. Why? Because they will be aware that God is with the righteous. God is with the followers of God. God is with, for our understanding, the Christians, that God is with them. The foolish shame the counsel of the poor, which is an example of their exploitation. They, they took advantage of the poor. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you read that idea that they shame the counsel of the poor, but then also what's the comparison there? What's the, the parallel to shaming the counsel of the poor? He says, because the Lord is his refuge. Whose refuge is the Lord? According to that verse, the poor. So in Psalm, right, we've talked about this before in other weeks. That's another word we've talked about. If, if the foolish are seen as these ones who exploit the poor, who usually is compared to the poor in Psalm? The wise or the followers of God, the ones that are being taken advantage of. And so here, when he says this, he's saying the Lord is the refuge to those that are being exploited. Because why? They call on the name of the Lord. He's a refuge to those who call upon him. Yeah, Avi. So would that tie into uh, Beatitudes, Matthew 5, the blessed are the poor in spirit? Yep. I believe so. Because be, that poor there in Matthew 5 is referring not to a literal poor, meaning without financial gain. It's referring to spiritual poor, right? Understanding I'm bankrupt without Christ. Absolutely. Um, my mind also goes to, and you can jot this down, and it's just, I'm not saying it's an exact connection, but my mind went there when I was writing this down. Um, Luke chapter 16. And the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. 
So the parable of rich man and Lazarus, if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And for time's sake, we won't dive into the whole parable. Uh, but what was the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Someone, like, let's walk through that quickly together. What was the, what's that parable talking about? There's a rich man and there's someone named? Lazarus. Okay, so let's break that apart. What do we know about the rich man? Mm-hmm. And the dogs would come with his sword, and he had like absolutely nothing, like yep. that could get him out of that state. Right. And then they both died, and then Lazarus went to this place apart from the Lord. He was right. separated. There was this great chasm. But somehow there was this dialogue going on. Yeah. I just kind of wonder about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and he would be like, you know, send them to, you know, Abraham's bosom, right? Because so, when the poor man died, he went to heaven. Right. He asked, he asked for Abraham to do something. Yeah, okay, he did ask it. Okay, yep. Right. So to send, um, you know, like there's a great chasm, I can't get to you. And then, well, at least we'll tell my brothers so that they don't have to come to this place. And then the answer was, they have the Bible. Right. Let them read the Bible. Right. That's what it's given for. Right. And specifically, he was asking for Abraham to resurrect Lazarus, right? Send Lazarus back from the dead. Because if they see and hear that... Then they'll believe. And we know this because Abraham says they have the prophets, they have the law, right? The book of Moses. If someone rises from the dead, Abraham says, they will not believe. If they don't believe the word of the prophets, they won't believe if someone goes back from the dead. Now that's, again, before Christ died and resurrected. Jesus resurrects, and to this day, people don't believe. Because the problem wasn't evidence. That's really what happened in that story, right? Uh, the rich man is saying, if you send Lazarus back, there'll be enough proof of a resurrection of what God is going to do. Therefore, they'll believe because it's clear. There's clear evidence. And I love what Abraham says. If they don't believe the law and the prophets, even if somebody rose from the dead, they will not believe. Why? Because they're foolish. It goes all the way back to verse 2. That they basically, they don't understand and they don't seek God. There is none that does good, verse 3, and they don't, they've gone astray. They've gone aside. They've chosen to go a different direction. So whether somebody raises from the dead or not, they will not believe because it's a heart problem, not an information problem. And so in this story, though, we see this example of a poor and the rich. Now, Lazarus, when he was in this world, everybody would have taken pity on him. Oh, look at poor Lazarus. He has nothing. But the rich man seemed successful, seemed like he had it all figured out. But when they went into eternity, the roles were reversed. Now the rich man has nothing but agony and pain. But Lazarus has joy and peace and rest and beauty all around him. Why? Because as we've been saying, there are two groups of people, the foolish and the wise. And just because this world calls someone foolish, it doesn't change how God defines that person. This was Paul's whole point in Corinthians and other epistles as well, but specifically he talks about that they think they're so wise. And I get so frustrated when I, whether it's media, whether you hear people talk about how there's this judgment over believers, those foolish believers and their archaic book and their silly little beliefs and their, you know, their fairy tale gospel. And I just feel such frustration and pity because one day God is going to definitively say, we're done now. 
and we're going to separate apart those that are no Christ and those that don't. And guess what? The, the reality is, as much as we don't like this, there's no more option. I cannot say, oh no, Lord, I, I'm sorry, I repent and I turn from my sin. That decision has been made. And now we are just going to live in the separation from God that we desired in this world. And in Christ, we will be with him for eternity. And so here, this psalm, long before the gospel was even remotely understood, begins to lay forth these truths. Verse 7. I love how this psalm ends. Because we see ultimately, in my opinion, and some other resources would agree, a prayer for salvation. A prayer for salvation. So the psalmist is writing again, specifically with Israel in mind. And he's writing a prayer of salvation or saying a prayer of salvation. So here we see the term Zion, not referring to merely the literal hill of Zion, but the city itself, or you could even say the region of Judah, the people of God, right? The area of Judah, Judah the Jews is what he's referring to here. The phrase in verse 7, which we'll read, I forgot to read that, but verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. The phrase bring back the captivity means to restore the fortunes. To restore the fortunes of his people. Now the phrasing here sounds foreign to us. We think bring back the captivity. It sounds like they're going back into captivity. But this captivity is not into Babylon, but it's a captivity to God. It's a commitment to the covenant of God. We're captive to God. And this is, again, not unfamiliar to New Testament believers. When you go into the New Testament, what does it talk about? Being a bond servant to Jesus Christ, being slaves to God. It sounds negative in our understanding, but we actually are in our freedom choosing to submit to his authority. And so here the psalmist is saying, I'm praying that the Lord will bring back and restore the fortunes of God's people. In an Old Testament understanding, this would mean submitting back to Deuteronomy 28 and an agreement with the covenant. Do these things, you will be blessed. Do not do these things, and you will be cursed. So this idea of we want to restore fortunes, we enter back into the covenant. Um, again, which is also referring not to Israel, the geographical location, but the people of God, the true Israel. Okay, this is true Israel. Not merely those that reside in the nation, but those that, like the remnant in Isaiah, are true followers of God. Now, the heart of this, and you can jot this down, again, Romans, and Paul refers to this, reminds me of Romans 9. The heart of verse 7 reminds me of Romans chapter 9, where Paul shares his heart for Israel to be saved. So Romans 9, uh, the beginning verses there talk about Paul's desire to be saved, or to see the, the nation of Israel be saved and to be restored. That's the heart of verse 7 here. Also, uh, Paul affirmed verse 7 of Psalm 14 at the close of his great discussion in Romans on the future redemption of the Jewish nation. So again, we see a lot of comparison here. Uh, Romans 9, as Paul concludes in, I believe it's Romans 11, he talks about this idea of the desire for the nation of Israel to be saved. So we see this connection again. So if we had to summarize this psalm, just... Seven simple verses, really. But if we had to summarize this psalm, this psalm is a sad and yet encouraging psalm. It is a sad and yet encouraging psalm. 
For the unbeliever or the foolish, it is tragic what we find in this psalm. And we do not rejoice in their destination. It may sound harsh to say, but they have committed to themselves. There is no God. And in eternity, they will be separated from God. They will have what they desire, no God. They have committed to that, and that is their fate apart from Christ. However, for the believer, it is a great comfort because when the world tells us how foolish we are to believe in the gospel, exploit us, use us, and look down on us, we stop and pause and remember that God is our refuge and is present to care for us. When the world or the foolish in God's eyes look down on us and want to say, oh, how foolish we are, and even exploit us, this is what Jesus said in the Gospels. This is what Paul said in his epistles. That there'll be those that want to exploit and use us in this world. And rather than return that with anger and vengeance, we bless them. We pray for them. We serve them. Why? Because God is our refuge. He is our strength. And we are using that as an opportunity to reveal to them the gospel. But we live in a day and age today, maybe more than ever. I don't know. But there are a lot of foolish that say there is no God. And it's displayed all around us. Why do we see media look like what it looks like? Why do we see TV shows and movies look like what they look like? Why do we see just blatant sin laid before us as normal and okay and humorous? And we, we pay money to go watch this stuff. Why, why is that everywhere around us? Because the foolish commit foolish deeds. And abominable works are the results of the foolish. And we live in a world where the foolish primarily are controlling entertainment and media. And as Christians, we have to make a decision to say, am I going to allow that to lead me practically to thinking and behaving like the foolish? Or will I say, no, I'm going to stand with Christ. I'm going to resist that in Christ's name. And I'm going to overcome that in Jesus' name. And I'm not going to allow the foolish to lead me. I want the Spirit of God to lead me. Is my life, is the evidence of my life acts of foolishness or am I living as wise? Not because I am wise, but because Christ in me gives me the strength to do that. And so again, it's not just a reminder for those that don't know Christ. I believe it's a reminder for those of us in Christ to pause and evaluate, does my life reflect fruit of the spirit or fruit of the flesh? And it's not just in the big sins, by the way, it's in the little things, the day-to-day things. What motivates me day to day? What drives me? Is it so that I can impress and have things of the world? Or is it so that I please my Father, that people will see my good works and glorify my Father who is in heaven? And I don't know about you, but I know day to day, moment by moment, I need to pause and say, am I living and thinking like the foolish or am I living and thinking like the wise? And honestly evaluate that and not just lump it all in and say, oh no, it's fine because the culture says it's fine or it's fine, it's no big deal. Are we really thinking through how am I practically living? Am I living as though there is no God? And make decisions as though there is no God. And so just for you, between you and the Lord, I would encourage you to consider that for yourself and ask the Lord to give you wisdom and guidance in that. Let's go ahead. We're going to pray. Our our time is is gone, but we'll pray. And then we'll let the students be dismissed to uh, the fellowship hall there for their uh, time to follow. And then uh, again, we'll be dismissed. But let's pray. And ask God to give us wisdom in these things. Father, I I just ask that we as a body here tonight. 
would pause and just give space for you to lead us. Lord, I've heard that verse, verse 1 of Psalm 14 referenced so many times. And sometimes, Lord, it's in an air of arrogance and condemnation because these individuals or people that we hear of in our world or that we know personally that reject God or that don't believe there is a God, Lord, we, we want to quote this verse to them in some form of an arrogant way. Well, you know, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, and I understand, Lord, that it's true. It doesn't change. But I pray that when we have conversations with people, when we interact with people, that there would be a graciousness, that there would be a compassion, a respect for one another, that we can say that this is a true passage of Scripture. And obviously, therefore, it is, it is truth. It doesn't change based on how we feel or the culture. But I pray that we would not have an arrogance about us or this mentality that we're somehow better because we're not as foolish as those individuals. Rather, Lord, I pray that it would give us pause to think, yes, we're in Christ and we know Christ and we've received you as our Savior, but practically are we living as fools? Who guides our day? Who guides our finances? Who guides our entertainment? Who guides what we say? Who guides how we act? Because if the answer to those questions is me, or self, or culture, or what others think, then we can say whatever we want, but we're living as fools. And I know, Lord, that I've, many times, in the course of a week, a day, I've lived as a fool. I've made a decision based on self and not Scripture. So, Father, I pray that you'd help all of us those that claim to be wise, those that claim to know Christ, to live as followers of Christ, to make decisions that reflect that priority. Lord, not to get caught up in all the cultural things that we see around us and the desires that pull and push at us, but Lord, to say, no matter what happens in this world, that we will stand for Christ. And so Lord, how that washes out in our lives, it's so unique and individual to each, each one of us. And thank you for being a God that works at the individual level in an intimate way. But Lord, I pray that we would strongly consider these things, evaluate these things, because we don't know what a day may bring forth. And we need to take advantage of this opportunity. And Father, I know this small group of people, this group in our church, Lord, the, the regulars, if we will, I'm sure... Lord, many would think, well, everyone here obviously knows Christ. But I pray, Lord, that we would be strong enough and brave enough to honestly evaluate, have, do we really know Christ? Do we really know you? Or do we just say we know you? Lord, may we know that the knowledge of our salvation is not based in some past experience, but in the present fruit that we see in our lives. Do we only see fruit of the foolish in our lives? Or do we see a desire to please you? And yeah, Lord, we struggle, but stumble at times, but we ultimately desire to please you. Or if we said in our heart, there is no God. Because we made ourselves our own God. So Lord, I just pray that you would lead God and direct in all these things. And if there's anyone here, Lord, no matter what profession they've made, no matter how long they've been in church, if they truly would right now, by the Spirit's leading, 
come to the conclusion that they don't know you, truly know you, I pray that they would come to know you by receiving you as Savior, confessing and repenting of their sins, and trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for your grace, your leadership, and in all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.